Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Until September 11, 2001, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of March 25, 1911, was the deadliest workplace disaster in the history of New York City. That fire rocked the nation and exposed the life-threatening conditions of America's sweatshop industry. It gave energy to the labor movement and unions and remade the Democratic Party of the time. Our guest, David Van Drele, is the author of Triangle, The Fire That Changed America, a book that presents a detailed examination of how this single event changed the course of the 20th century politics and labor relations. David Van Drele and I visited by phone from New York City in early September 2003 and began with his description of the fire of March 25, 1911, that changed America. It's a fascinating story of uh, political organization and how at certain moments uh, tragedy can lead to something uh, valuable if people are willing to organize, willing to vote, willing to make themselves heard. New York City uh, at the time of this fire, 1911, was governed by a corrupt political organization known as Tammany Hall. Tammany, the Democratic Party of New York, had run the city pretty much unchallenged for more than a generation. But a wave of immigration was sweeping into New York, unprecedented, from Eastern Europe, also from Southern Italy. Millions of immigrants arriving in the late 19th and early 20th century, and for the first time organizing themselves into labor unions and demanding uh, rights and voting for uh, radical candidates. Well, uh, why were these immigrants different than those that came 30 and 40 years before? Yeah, it was a combination of things. There were cultural differences. There was the fact that uh, many of these immigrants were coming from uh, the Russian Empire. They were uh, Jews who were fleeing political oppression there. And because their oppression had been political and not just economic, they had begun to uh, develop political apparatus even in uh, Russia before they came over. It was a whole society. It wasn't just the young men. It wasn't just the poor who emigrated, but it was the educated. It was the uh, leaders of, uh, of Russian Jewish society who all picked up and moved to New York and created institutions very quickly, newspapers, political parties, labor unions. They were joined by the upper crust of New York, which was swept up in uh, a spirit of progress and a political movement known as progressivism, uh, sort of represented by their peer, Theodore Roosevelt. When these two groups, the upper-class progressives and the lower-class socialists, got together on issues to demand change, they were able to get Tammany's attention 
for the first time. And the boss of Tammany Hall seized on the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire as the opportunity to put the Democratic Party for the first time on the side of reform. Tammany legislature passed uh, scores of workplace and other labor laws in the years immediately following the Triangle Fire. It was the most progressive set of labor laws in the country to that date, and it was hugely popular with New York voters. It swept Al Smith into the governor's office for four terms and nearly took him to the White House in 1928. And the same agenda, the same program, and many of the same people went with Franklin Roosevelt to Washington in 1932 and gave us the New Deal. So you can trace things that we take for granted in our lives today, like Social Security, like the public housing law, like the Fair Labor Practices laws. You can trace all of them directly through these people and this agenda to the birthplace of the move of the uh, of, of the reform program, namely the Triangle Waste Company fire. I remember when I was a child, my father would talk about it. He was nine years old then, but he never gave me too many details. Can you share with us what happened? Sure. It was a Saturday afternoon in late March, March 25th, 1911. It was a beautiful day. And so thousands of New Yorkers were out in the streets. They were in Washington Square enjoying the spring day after a hard winter. It was closing time at the Triangle Factory, which was on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of what was then a skyscraper just off Washington Square. Somebody, probably a a cutter on the 8th floor, uh, was enjoying a, uh, a secret cigarette um, and dropped a match into a bin of scraps uh, under a cutting table. There were bins like this all over the eighth floor. They were filled with over a ton of light cotton and tissue paper scraps, and they went up like a firebomb. Within five minutes, the whole eighth floor was consumed in flames. The 200 workers on that floor barely escaped. There was a warning call, phone call made to the 10th floor, which is where the factory owners had their offices, where the shipping and packing departments were, and those workers were able to escape barely up to the roof. It was the ninth floor where there was no warning where the damage was done. There were three ways out of that ninth-floor sewing plant, which was a big open room with eight long rows of sewing machines, about 250 workers that day. There was a stairway that led up to the roof and down to the street, and that was open for a few key moments, but pretty quickly was cut off by the flames. There was a fire escape in the rear air shaft of the building, flimsy 18-inch fire escape that became overcrowded with workers and collapsed very so, quickly. So people fell to their death from Fell it? to their deaths, about two dozen in the air shaft. And there was a passenger elevator and a stairway in the, in the, in the far corner. This 
the, the passenger elevators were operated by two extremely brave young men who kept them going uh, as long as possible and saved over 100 workers. But eventually they couldn't run anymore, and that left just that stairway, which was blocked by a locked door. Every day at closing time, the door was locked so that all the workers would have to leave through the other exit which was manned by a night watchman who would search their purses to see that they weren't stealing these uh, blouses. Was theft at that time a, uh, a political concept of the owners, or was it a reality? There had been examples of workers stealing uh, blouses from the Triangle, the owners at their trial, they were indicted for manslaughter. They told stories of catching workers with one or two or three blouses. But under cross-examination, they had to admit that they had never lost more than 10 or 15 or perhaps in their worst year, $25 worth of blouses. So it was more a reality in their minds, a fear in their minds, than a reality uh, in the life of the factory. So what happened in the course of the fire? Once the uh, fire escape collapsed and the one functioning exit uh, was cut off, the elevators could no longer run, the door was locked. That left uh, the workers inside that loft with just two terrible choices. They could die in the flames or they could go out the windows. You remember I said it was a beautiful spring day and these thousands of people in the streets around the factory heard the fire engines, they saw the smoke, so they all came running to see what was happening. And the streets were literally filled with people watching as 54 workers jumped or fell to their deaths. It was, uh, for the New York of that day, a sort of rough parallel for the experience that all Americans had in watching the destruction of the World Trade Center towers. Obviously, there's a difference of scale there, but the shock of seeing it with their own eyes uh, was the same. One of the people who ran to the alarms and saw this happen was Frances Perkins. She became the first woman ever to serve in a president's cabinet. She was Franklin Roosevelt's labor secretary and one of the heroes of the New Deal. And uh, she talked about the guilt that New Yorkers felt that uh, this could happen, uh, that this could be allowed to happen. And she talked about, at the end of her life, talked about this fire as the beginning of, uh, of the greatest uh, domestic uh, policy changes of the 20th century. It seemed that there were other smaller fires, not quite as tragic as this, that had occurred uh, prior, uh, but nothing was done. Yeah. One of the surprises to me in my research was to learn just how dangerous American workplaces were in this early part of the Industrial Age. By one estimate, a hundred workers a day in the United States were dying on the job, and mine collapses, railroad disasters, steel mill uh, accidents, ship sinkings, on and on, and factory fires. In just four months before this fire, there had been a fire in a Newark, New Jersey 
garment factory, almost identical to the Triangle factory. It killed 25 people. The fire chief of New York City, in the aftermath of that fire, warned that something worse would happen eventually in New York, and it took only four months for his words to be proven true. Today on Radio Curious, we're talking with David Von Draley, author of Triangle, The Fire That Changed America, a massive fire in a shirtwaist factory that occurred on March 25, 1911. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. David, is there a section of the book that you could read for us? Sure. This is near the end of the fire. At that point, 13 minutes after the fire began and 8 minutes after the quitting bell rang on the ninth floor, 80 or 90 workers remained trapped in the loft and nothing could save them. Joe Zito's elevator was stuck at the bottom of its shaft under the weight of many bodies. Mortiallo, Gaspar Mortiallo's car, could not rise because its rails were warping in the heat. Fire from the air shaft and the Green Street windows had converged at the rear of the shop, closing off the Green Street door. Fire was burning in the dressing rooms where women huddled pitifully behind the thin wooden walls. It was driving relentlessly across the room, fed by skipping little flare-ups in the wicker work baskets from machine table to machine table, and its destiny was manifest to swallow the whole room and everything in it. A young woman stood in a window as flames flickered around her. She flung her hat grandly into the air, then she opened her purse and threw all the money down, then she jumped. Two young women wrestled at another window. One was trying to keep the other from jumping. She failed, and her friend went down. The one remaining, Sally Weintraub, steadied herself against the building, raised her hands, and began gesturing. To those watching from far below, she appeared to be delivering a speech to the nearby beautiful air. She finished speaking and followed her friend. William Gunn Shepard saw a young man wearing a hat appear in a Washington Place window. The man helped a young woman step onto the windowsill, then held her away from the building, like a dancer, perhaps, or, as Shepard put it, like a man helping a woman into a streetcar. He let go. He held out a second girl in the same way and then let her drop, Shepard wrote. Then he held out a third girl. They didn't resist. The fourth one was apparently his sweetheart. Amazed, the bystanders saw them embrace and kiss. Quote, then he held her out into space and dropped her, but quick as a flash he was on the windowsill himself. His coat flattened upward. The air filled his trouser legs. I could see that he wore tan shoes and hose. His hat remained on his head. The reporter later walked up to the body. Quote, I saw his face before they covered it, he wrote. You could see in it that he was a real man. He had done his best. The last one out of the Washington Place windows was a woman who flung herself at the fire department ladder three stories below, hoping to catch it. An impossible attempt. Then Shepard heard fresh screams from the witnesses on Green Street, so he hurried around the corner in time to watch the final scene. 
David, when you do your research, how do you find these kinds of stories? In this case, it wasn't easy. The documents, the key documents of the Triangle Fire, unbelievably, were allowed to be lost and destroyed over the years by city officials here in New York. The crucial document of this story is the transcript of the Triangle Fire trial. The owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, were indicted on manslaughter charges and tried in, New, in, uh, tried in December of 1911. It was a three-week trial. 155 people testified, survivors, the owners, the firefighters. The whole story is there. It's contemporaneous. It's under oath. And... For over 30 years, historians have believed that the only copy of that transcript had been lost and destroyed in the late 1960s. I looked for a year and finally found the personal copy of that transcript that had belonged to the defense attorney at the trial, Max Stoyer. His name in those days was... Uh, famous all over the city and uh, indeed around the country. He was the most famous celebrated lawyer in America, but now forgotten. And he left his papers to a law association uh, in downtown New York. Uh, they were stored away, eventually moved to the basement, and forgotten even by the librarians there. It was only after a year of looking that we were able to unearth those papers, find that transcript, and that's what allowed me to tell this story again uh, for the first time in decades. David, why did you choose this story to write about? I think that it's a, it's a chance for me. Uh, in my day job, I'm a reporter at the Washington Post. I cover politics mostly. And uh, politics in America are pretty frustrating uh, for many of us at this uh, time. And this story seized my imagination as an example of a time when politics worked. It never works perfectly, and it didn't work perfectly before or after the Triangle Fire. But real change, real reform, real improvements came out of this fire, and they came out because people organized, because they voted, because they held their government accountable. And so this was a way to write a story about how politics can work, can function, uh, for a political reporter who I guess was getting frustrated with writing about uh, systems that too many voters find to be non-responsive. Do you think that the changes would have occurred if this fire had not happened? I suppose many of them would have. As I say, there was a great spirit of progress, of, of change, of expectation alive at the turn of the century in New York and all across the country. This was a time of airplanes for the first time, of skyscrapers, of electric lights, and automobiles and people were thinking that the future could be better than the past. So, yes, progress would have been made. But that 
sort of dodges the the historical reality. It's important to know how things actually did happen. Could they have happened another way? I suppose so. But this is the way America did change in the 20th century. This is one of the true pivotal stories of our uh, of our past, and so it needs to be told. If it hadn't happened, would our world be completely different? Uh, I can't say. History doesn't disclose its alternatives. We know that this is what happened, and it's something that uh, that Americans should should be in touch with. You've also written about uh, the lowest of the dead inside death row. Can you tell us briefly about that study? This was my first book, Among the Lowest of, of the Dead. It was uh, an attempt to tell, through the experience of one state, Florida, what the modern uh, death penalty uh, experience has been like. It, it uh, told the story uh, as seen through the eyes of prosecutors and defense attorneys of people on death row and also the victims, uh, the survivors of the people they killed. It tried to take in uh, the first 10 years of uh, modern executions beginning in 1979 and going up through 1989 and show why the few people who were executed came to be executed and also why the hundreds of people who were sentenced to death and never executed, uh, why that happened as well. It was uh, not an argument really in one direction or another so much as a journalistic attempt to tell the story as a story of what the system looks like from the inside and why it doesn't work. What are your thoughts on why America has the death penalty and so many other countries do not? Boy, that's a complicated uh, question, but I have a couple of thoughts about it. One was that uh, there was a great wave of uh, abolition of uh, capital punishment across Europe and in much of the world as the totalitarian regimes of the mid-century, the Nazis, uh, the Soviet communists, as one by one these, uh, in, these uh, apparatus, uh, these governments fell. They had abused, obviously, capital punishment on a horrendous scale, and there was naturally a revulsion against the government's power to kill in those societies. And America was blessed in the 20th century not to have a holocaust, not to have uh, the gulags, not to have uh, the Khmer Rouge experience of Cambodia. And so Americans have not really had to come to grips in the same way with that issue. We also experienced uh, an almost unprecedented crime wave from the late 60s uh, into the late 1990s that uh, outraged Americans, outraged them rightly, and Americans demanded answers from politicians who didn't really have any good answers, and the death penalty became their way of signaling a response. Fortunately, that uh, crime wave has turned around for reasons that uh, people still don't totally understand, but uh, crime levels have dropped to 
almost where they were at the beginning of that uh, burst. And uh, I think that's part of the reason that you see a new look around the country at this uh, system of capital punishment and uh, whether we need it. Well, David, what other stories or projects are attracting your attention these days? <laughs> that's interesting. Well, there's, a, there's always plenty of news to cover. Certainly in uh, Washington, in where job. you work. In yeah. Washington, uh, in California, where you work, there's some good political stories these days. But um, I, I, I think my next project, uh, I, I hope, will be uh, historical in nature again. I really enjoyed the archival work uh, involved in this story. Um, I liked recovering uh, things that have been lost. I was particularly pleased to be able to tell for the first time the stories of some of the women who died in this fire. Even their names had not been recorded before this book. We put together a list of the known 140 victims for the first time. And to put them back centrally in this crucial uh, historical tale, that, that's gratifying because Americans, in a sense, sort of owe it uh, to these young people, some as young as 14 years old, uh, who died in this fire, at least to remember who they were. Well, David Vandrele, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you if you could recommend a book that you find interesting. I'll give you a really short fun book for anybody who wants to understand how politics really work in the world. It was one of the pleasures of my reading for the Triangle uh, book. It's called Plunkett of Tammany Hall, P-L-U-N-K-I-T-T. -T. It's about 90 pages. You can find it in paperback online. And it's the uh, hugely engaging uh, discussions at the boot black stand of the New York County Courthouse circa 1900 of George Washington Plunkett, one of the sachems of Tammany Hall, explaining how the system works and why things are the way they are. And you'll learn not just about historic New York, but also about why many things happen even to this day. It's a rare opportunity to see inside the mind of a honest politician. George Washington Plunkett wrote uh, Plunkett of Tammany Hall? It's a guy named uh, William Reardon, R-I-O-R-D-A-N. He interviewed Plunkett. David Vandrele, author of Triangle, The Fire That Changed America. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you for the talk. David Vandrele is the author of Triangle, the fire that changed America. At the end of his book, Vandrely concludes, As for the mostly nameless young women and men who went on strike in 1909 and bravely walked those relentless picket lines through a freezing winter, and especially those remarkable young people who later died at the Triangle, their memory grows. Their individual lives are mostly lost to us, but their monument and legacy are stitched into our world. The book David Vandrely recommends is Plunkett 
of Tammany Hall by William Reardon. This program was originally broadcast on September 9, 2003. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.